But through the hallways of academia And on the face of the moon The footprints of conquest Haven't left us any room To say Greetings and welcome to the 19th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement. This is Natasha. I am a new member of the WLRN Collective and the resident graphic designer. Today's podcast is a tribute to our sisters of the second wave, the women who dedicated themselves to fighting for women's liberation in their everyday lives. We will hear excerpts from Thistle's interview with Tara Ayers, a feminist activist who was instrumental in co-creating safe and accessible spaces at Mitchfest for women with disabilities and led workshops on radical feminism. In addition, WLRN's Amanda interviewed Linda Bellows, a second-wave feminist who was recently barred from speaking at Cambridge University in the UK. WLRN's Julia Beck caught up with Falcon River, a second-wave feminist who shared her experiences from being in the thick of it in the 1960s and 70s. Sekhmet Shial provides us with a historical context for presenting these three women, and we welcome back Sarah, who wrote and is presenting our WLRN World Headlines coming up next. But first, before we move on to this exciting program, the team at WLRN would like to give a shout out and well wishes to our faithful volunteer, Jenna DeCuarto, who's getting married this month. Congratulations, Jenna and Kristen. We wish you a life of happiness and joy together in your union. Here are the WLRN World Headlines, as written and presented by Sarah. Last month, WLRN reported on the new policy in Saudi Arabia, which allows women to drive, lifting the ban imposed 60 years ago. The lifting of the ban will take effect this coming June. Men are already creating a backlash, with one leading cleric, Sheikh Saad al-Hajari, arguing women have just half the brain power of men, or a quarter when they are shopping at the market. Al-Hajari explained that this is because, in his view, women pray less often than men due to not being allowed to pray during their periods. He lectured publicly, quote, Would you give a man with half an intellect a driving license? So, how would you give one to a woman when she has half an intellect? End quote. In California, about 200 incarcerated women are fighting the fires devastating the state, which have already killed 21 people at the time we compiled the headlines for this episode. 
The man in charge of the women's training camp, Keith Rady, told the New York Times, Any fire you go on statewide, whether it be small or large, the inmate hand crews make up anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of the total fire personnel. End quote. Latoya Nahar, one of the women fighting the fires, said, quote, Every day is a difficult day. This will show you that you can do whatever you can put your mind to. End quote. The women do the same work as the men, working in crews of 14, using chainsaws to cut containment lines to prevent the spread of fire. The pay is a mere $2 per day in camp and $1 per hour for time fighting the fires, plus two days off their sentence for each day they are in the fire camp. Typically, incarcerated women and men in California earn just one day for each day of what is referred to as good behavior. While in training, some of the women are not paid, nor does the program prepare them to become firefighters when they are freed. Gail McLaughlin, the former mayor of Richmond, stated she supports the program, but stated that, quote, one dollar an hour is not fair pay. No matter how you may want to dress it up, you've got slave labor, and that's not acceptable, end quote. Global Estimates of Modern Slavery, a United Nations report released September 13th, warns that 40.3 million people around the world were subjected to some form of slavery in 2016. 71%, or 28.7 million, were women or girls forced into marriage, prostitution, and labor. A quarter of the victims were children. One million children were victims of commercial sexual exploitation. Women and girls accounted for 99% of sexual exploitation victims. Walk Free, the agency which helped produce the report along with the UN, estimated that 57,000 victims total were enslaved in the United States alone. Read the report in full at alliance87.org under Global Estimates. A 39-year-old man from Pittsburgh was sentenced to 287 years in prison for kidnapping women at gunpoint, raping them, and forcing them into prostitution. One of Harper's crimes was directing three male friends to rape one of the women for breaking one of his rules. Harper also conspired with other rival pimps to ensure that women who attempted escape would be hunted down and returned to him. Harper's conviction relied heavily on three women who had to ex recount their experiences in court. Mary Knox, the senior deputy district attorney, said, These women were determined not to continue to be victimized and deserved to be commended for their strength and bravery in coming forward to help end Harper's reign of terror. Harper asserted his innocence throughout the whole trial. In Mexico, a court sentenced Pedro Payan Gloria to 430 years in prison for killing 11 women he forced into prostitution at a hotel in Juarez. They were as young as 15 years old. He recruited them with job offers at downtown businesses, but then abducted, drugged them, and held them captive. Pedro was part of a gang that forced downtown businesses to pay protection money to them, but he would allow the businesses to forego payments if they participated in his human trafficking scheme. The women's bodies were found in 2012. 430 years is a historically long sentence. A male California middle school teacher, Samuel Knipe, who was 34, 
was arrested on Friday, October 6th, after his sexual abuse of a female student was discovered. Neep started abusing her when she was 13 and continued for three years. Neep blackmailed the victim by threatening to post child pornography pictures of her online. Renewed allegations against top Hollywood executive and serial sexual harasser Harvey Weinstein have prompted many women to reveal what he did to them. Harvey, who has fled the country a la Roman Polanski, was the co-founder of Miramax and a top donor for the Democratic Party. Over 30 women have made allegations so far, including Angelina Jolie, Ashley Judd, Cara Delevingne, Ava Green, Minka Kelly, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Rose McGowan and four other women have accused Weinstein of rape. McGowan says she was blacklisted in Hollywood after Weinstein raped her. Weinstein settled out of court with McGowan when she was 23 years old. At the time, she took his settlement as an admission of guilt. Weinstein, an Oscar and Tony Award winner, has now been fired by his own company's board of directors and expelled from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Weinstein appears to have been routinely enabled by bystanders who knew what he was doing. A 2010 article entitled Harvey's Girls alluded to Weinstein's behavior by stating, quote, every few years Harvey picks a new girl as his pet, end quote. Certainly his lawyers and publicists worked to systematically intimidate his victims into silence. Rose McGowan has referred to the network of enablers around celebrity predators like Weinstein and Bill Cosby as a cottage industry. Everyday women are using this moment of media coverage about an individual male to speak out about their own abuse, assault, and rape at the hands of men and the nature of male violence itself. The Metropolitan Police, responsible for the Greater London area, have come under fire for not doing enough to prevent male police spies from sexually abusing unaware women while investigating undercover. On September 19th, 13 women who were involved in sexual and romantic relationships with these spies wrote an open letter to Home Secretary Amber Rudd, a conservative British politician, regarding the public inquiry into undercover policing. The women pointed out that although the inquiry is on its second year, the names of over a thousand groups spied on have not been released to the public, nor have the cover names of the officers involved in the spying. They also noted the omission in the two-year update put out by the inquiry in July of the public apology issued by the Metropolitan Police, which acknowledged that police spies entering into sexual relationships while undercover is a human rights abuse. You can read their full letter at policespiesoutofourlives.org.uk. On October 4th, Polish police in Warsaw and three other cities raided the offices of two women's organizations, Women's Rights Center and BABA, which aid women who have experienced male violence. The raids lasted hours. Polish feminists argue this was retaliation for their participation in anti-government protests earlier that week. The protests took place on the anniversary of an earlier mass protest, which was organized by women and actually stopped the Parliament's plan for a total ban on abortion. The marches this year protested the fact that abortion is still illegal in most situations. Prosecutors said the timing of the raids was pure coincidence and that they were just there to gather evidence against the past government's justice ministry, which funds both groups. 
In September, in New York City, Anna Chambers, an 18-year-old girl from Brooklyn, was arrested by two male NYPD officers for smoking marijuana in the parking lot of a Chipotle restaurant in Coney Island. They forced her to undress for a search, found clonopin on her person, and handcuffed her, although they did not arrest her male friend for the same crime. Then they raped Chambers while she was handcuffed in the police van. Despite doctors finding signs of rape on her body, both officers claimed it was actually consensual sex. Chambers is suing the state for damages. Mainstream news outlets, along with all sorts of websites from copwatch blogs to leftist opinion pieces, have published sexualized Instagram photos of Chambers in bikinis alongside the story of her rape, which Chambers has objected to on her public Twitter account. Small protests have been staged outside the courthouse when Chambers has needed to appear, with women and some men carrying signs that say, We believe you, Anna Chambers, and kill all rapists. According to the New York Times, on October 24th, a 10-year-old girl with cerebral palsy was detained by federal immigration authorities in Texas after she passed through a Border Patrol checkpoint on her way to a hospital to undergo emergency gallbladder surgery. The girl, Rosa Maria Hernandez, who was brought over the border illegally to live in Laredo, Texas when she was three months old, was being transferred from a medical center in Laredo to a hospital in Corpus Christi around 2 a.m. on Tuesday when Border Patrol agents stopped the ambulance she was riding in, her family said. The agents allowed her to continue to Driscoll Children's Hospital, but followed the ambulance the rest of the way there. The entire time Rosa Maria was in surgery and then in recovery, several armed Border Patrol agents stood outside her hospital room. By Wednesday evening, according to family members and advocates involved with her case, immigration agents had taken her to a facility in San Antonio where migrant children who arrive alone in the United States from Central America are usually held, even though her parents, who both lack legal status, live 150 miles away in Laredo. Her placement there highlighted the unusual circumstances of her case. The federal government maintains detention centers for adult immigrants it plans to deport, facilities for families who arrive at the border together, and shelters for children who come by themselves, known as unaccompanied minors. But it is rare, if not unheard of, for a child already living in the United States to be arrested, particularly one with a serious medical condition. As a general matter, the Trump administration has hardened immigration enforcement across the country, lifting guidelines established under President Barack Obama that made it unlikely that any unauthorized immigrants other than recent arrivals to the country and those with serious criminal records would be deported. Between Mr. Trump's inauguration and early September, the number of immigration arrests rose more than 40% compared with the same period last year, according to data released by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. A new report by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has revealed 
that women's refuges in the UK have seen their budgets decreased by nearly a quarter over the past seven years, despite Prime Minister Theresa May's promise to increase funding for women fleeing violent men. More than a thousand women and children fleeing male violence in the home have been turned away from shelters in the past six months. Managers in 50 local authorities have not actually received any of the funds they were awarded eight months ago. Last month, Michigan Judge Gregory Ross signed an order to allow convicted rapist Christopher Mirasolo joint custody rights to the child of Tiffany, the woman he raped and impregnated when she was 12. Mirasolo kidnapped her for two days and threatened to kill her if she told anyone. He was given a plea deal and served just six and a half months in county jail. In 2012, he raped another girl between the ages of 13 and 15. Now 21, Tiffany is speaking out on camera to news outlets like ABC, reporting that the prosecuting attorney and judge threatened to take away her public assistance if she did not reveal that Mirasolo was the father of her child. I gave up high school. I gave up my friends to raise a baby and go to work, she said. Tiffany's attorney, Rebecca Kiesling, said, I've had victims who were cut off from state aid because they couldn't name the rapist, because they were abducted and raped by a stranger. The county prosecutor's office said it plans to conduct an internal review of these custody cases. After being coercively sterilized at the Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon, Canada, two anonymous Indigenous women are hoping to bring a class action lawsuit against the province and the doctors who performed the procedures. One of the women is a Anishinaabe and was asked to sign papers agreeing to be sterilized after being given opioids and while being rushed into surgery. She was told the procedure was reversible. Since the surgery, she has suffered symptoms of early menopause and hypothyroidism, among other concerns. The other woman, who was Cree, explicitly denied consent and is now experiencing similar health issues. If the class action lawsuit is certified by a judge, indigenous women from any health region in Saskatchewan with similar experiences will be able to join the suit. The women pointed out that Canadian doctors have been sterilizing indigenous women coercively since at least the 1930s. In July, the Saskatoon Health Region issued a public apology for its history of forced sterilization and also announced that it had revised its policy for sterilization after two women academics issued a report on the matter which included the stories of 16 indigenous women. Thousands of women representing a group called Women Wage Peace marched through Jerusalem on Sunday, October 8th to demand the continuation of Israeli-Palestinian peace talks and coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians. This was after these women marched for two weeks throughout other areas of Israel and the West Bank. The women sang and beat drums. The final march started outside the Supreme Court and ended in Independence Park, so women could listen to a rally with speakers from both Arab and Israeli communities. In addition to the goal of coexistence, the march demanded that Israel comply with UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which mandates that women are equally represented in all aspects of negotiations. The Palestinian Liberation Organization issued a statement of support before sending out more than 20 buses from the West Bank to help Palestinian women get to the march. 
Meanwhile, both Hamas and the International Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS, campaign denounced the march. BDS accused the Palestinian women of normalizing relations with the State of Israel to undermine the BDS movement and called for, quote, peaceful sabotage, end quote, of the march. Hamas called it, quote, a departure from the national consensus and an offense against the history of our people, end quote and called on its supporters to confront the march and isolate its organizers. Some women criticized the march as well, particularly its efforts to appeal to what Women Wage Peace calls moderate settler women. One critic was Orly Noy, who wrote an editorial titled, How Can Women Wage Peace Without Talking About the Occupation? Despite her concerns, she also noted that women-led politics can be revolutionary and powerful, and applauded the women for wanting to build a peace movement. Noy wrote, quote, I came early, deciding to sit in a cafe along the route of the march. I asked one of the women, a Palestinian Israeli from Yaffa, if she isn't bothered that women wage peace never hints at the word occupation, end quote. The woman Noy spoke to replied, quote, that was the decision that was made. Of course it bothers me, as a woman, as a Palestinian, and as an Israeli. But this is what we've decided. What can we do? Keep sitting at home? We need to do something to change reality, end quote. One march organizer, Huda Abarkab, a Palestinian woman from Hebron in the West Bank, one of the most conflict-ridden areas, said, quote, We must come together to be able to reach the peace that we all want, end quote. Another woman wage peace member stated, quote, Together, Palestinian and Israeli women can be stronger. We can tell our leaders, stop the war, and think together about a political agreement, end quote. And here's an update from feminist organization Wolf. Women's Liberation Front. California Governor Jerry Brown recently signed a law that removes the basic human rights of elderly and disabled women to have a safe and private place away from men to use the toilet, shower, and sleep while in long-term medical care. This is now the law of the land in the seventh largest economy in the world. If you've never heard about this, you could hardly be blamed, for both the progressives sponsoring the bill and the conservatives opposing it have almost erased women's concerns from the picture, while the media has been largely silent. On September 5th, Wolf sent a letter to the main author of the bill, California State Senator Scott Weiner, urging him to slow the bill down in order to remove those sections that put women in harm's way. The bill will allow any man who claims to have a woman gender identity to have unquestioned access to women's bathrooms, shower rooms, and sleeping rooms. Women and girls who repeatedly object to men in their spaces or who repeatedly misgender such men can be punished with fines and even jail time. The bill's requirements and restrictions impact not only staff, but also patients in long-term care facilities for seniors, developmentally disabled kids and adults, and abused or neglected children with serious medical needs, in other words, those most vulnerable to sexual and physical abuse at the hands of violent men. On the same day Wolf wrote to Senator Weiner to protest his assault on women's rights, his office issued a press statement dubbing 
calling the bill the, quote, LGBT Seniors Bill of Rights, end quote, and characterizing the opposition as coming solely from, quote, the religious right, the same folks who oppose all LGBT civil rights bills, end quote. To be sure, the bill also punishes discrimination on the basis of a patient's sexual orientation, HIV status, or nonconformance with sex-based stereotypes. But none of that diminishes the fact that Mr. Weiner's bill puts elderly and disabled women and girls at higher risk of predation and abuse. His press statement only alludes to these concerns indirectly, but brushes them off as the, quote, North Carolina trans people will rape you in the bathroom absurd argument, end quote. Again, this obscures the fact that it is women who are worried about being raped or otherwise violated due to reckless gender-neutral policies for not only bathrooms, but also women's locker rooms, women's jails, and women's emergency shelters for victims of domestic violence or homelessness. And women do not fear violation by some vague, unidentified class of, quote, trans people, end quote, but men, regardless of their gender feelings. The conservative opponents of the bill at least acknowledge its effect on women and girls, but almost as an afterthought, buried among generalized anti-government, anti-progressive rhetoric, as in the article published by The Federalist on September 15th, and in coverage by Fox News. They seem primarily concerned that the bill will force medical staff to use, quote, preferred pronouns, end quote, and that it does not allow for the sort of religious exemptions that conservatives demand from what they call, quote, the LGBTQ plus agenda, unquote. While incursions on the free speech of nurses and doctors is a valid concern, it pales in comparative importance to the material threat now facing medically vulnerable women and girls, and this threat could not be addressed by granting religious exemptions for a few individuals. People across the political spectrum must wake up and start prioritizing the safety and privacy of women and girls.
That was Misty Mountain by Farron. I'm pretty excited for the show today. It's an honor to pay tribute to our sisters who came before us in the second wave. This October-November season has been a bit creepier than seasons past, with climate chaos upon us, mass shootings, and other horrible events happening all over the globe. We draw inspiration to go forward in the struggle for women's liberation by seeing and coming to understand that the circumstances our sisters were under in the 1960s and 70s were not much different than those we face today. At least on a fundamental social level, patriarchal culture has not changed, but we can see it being amplified by today's electronic communications. You might argue that our ability to see the workings of our innermost cultural values or lack of values, as it were, via the external brain, the internet, allows us to get both a micro-psychological and a macro-sociological view of what ails us. Once getting that holistic view and naming the problem, male violence, the answer to male rule is to make up our own rules and our own society as women. We aim to make WLRN its own society unto itself. We are a planet in the femisphere and welcome you to dock here a while to bear witness to women taking back our rightfully powerful place in the world today. We report about global events from a women-only point of view and maintain a women-only membership policy. Thanks for staying tuned to Feminist Community Powered Radio. We will now hear excerpts from an interview WLRN's Julia Beck did with Falcon River. Ms. River is a professional craftswoman, massage therapist, intuitive archer, and ordained priestess. As a butch lesbian in the early 70s, River found employment as a drag king, winning the title of Mr. Roanoke for two consecutive years. In 1975, she and her partner founded the very first multifunctional lesbian bar in Louisville, Kentucky. That same year, River helped establish and defend the first Michigan Women's Music Festival. In 1999, she met Ruth Barrett, and together they founded the Temple of Diana, a female-only congregation of Dianic witches. I do have some questions for you about second wave feminism, and I understand that you came of age during that time. What was that like? <laughs> it was a really great fun. We were wild and crazy bunch. When did you first know that you're a lesbian? Well, 
I remember going to kindergarten, and they used to have older kids who would step out into the crosswalks and hold these big, long flags, and the cars were supposed to stop. And I fell in love with Sherry Behringer, and the feelings that I had for Sherry were pretty much like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that badge, and I loved the way she handled that flag. So when did you first come out? Well, I actually came out when I was 16, and I was living in California, in Huntington Beach, California, with some of my cousins. And my older cousin, Sherry, was 26 at the time, and she got me a fake ID and took me down to a lesbian bar. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was down in Long Beach, California. Basically, walked in, and on one side, there were the beautiful femmes all sitting at the tables with their drinks, and on the other side were all the butchers at the pool table with their hair slicked back, and Sherry looked over at one of the butch women and kind of curled her finger just so, and the woman left her game and came over to where I was with Sherry, and Sherry pushed me forward and said, here, teach her what she needs to know. After you came out. Were you ever in any danger? Uh, I was never not in danger, honey. I'd like to take a moment, actually, to refer you and your listeners to um, a book written by Dr. Marie Cartier. It's called Baby, You Are My Religion. And it's about bar culture pre-Stonewall. And I was one of the main informants for her book. So in terms of being in danger... I was in and out of bars throughout the South simply for being an out butch lesbian. I also did drag. What was that like? It was the times, my dear. There was no feminism. There was only gay bar culture. And uh, quite frankly, it was very difficult for butch women to get employment. The femmes could because they could pass, and oftentimes in couples, it was the femme who actually was the breadwinner, not the butch. Was it part of your self-expression that you could tap into this performance? No, not at all. It was purely economic. Why did you stop doing drag? I had actually years before when I was a Girl Scout. Now we're jumping back in time. First year I was a camper. And I had a crush on a girl who was a counselor in training. So we had terrible crush on each other. But both of us were too innocent and ignorant to have any idea how to consummate said crush. So anyway, cut to after coming out and doing drag and a few other things, I actually got a letter from her and... When I wrote back to her, I told her what I was. and She said, great, come visit. I ended up going to Louisville, Kentucky, and ended up helping her come out, and we ran off together. So together we discovered feminism. 
There was already a group of radical women who had started this organization called the Lesbian Feminist Union. It was founded by a woman named Mary Emma Hickson, who went on to become quite an important civil rights lawyer. So we joined this group and immediately became radicalized and did a lot of amazing things. We started a bar called Mother's Brew. We built a performance space and we had the first well-known women's music artists come through. Uh, We had Meg Christian and Holly Near and Robin Flower and Maxine Feldman and We also had a feminist lending library. We bought a house in a really run-down section of town, a three-story mansion, and we all fixed it up. And we had an apartment on the third floor for any women who needed shelter. I think we qualify as the first battered women's shelter in Louisville. So we were busy Amazons. Is it true that it was women's only uh, shelter and bar? Yeah. We don't have those places anymore. There's no place like that in my city. We made it happen. Nothing like that had been there before. We made it up as we went along. And you got to remember, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. There was only bulk mailing parties (laughs) and phone trees. We actually got together, physically got together and talked and talked and talked and talked. We made it happen. What do you think is the importance of women-only spaces? I've devoted my life to making sure it happened. I would have died without it, and I'll defend it until I have my last breath. What do you think about uh, lesbian separatism? Because that was a big thing, saying heck to this and just leaving society. You know, I identified as a lesbian separatist for quite a while, but that's not realistic, and that's not the world I want to live in. I primarily spend my time around women, and many of those women are women who love men. I want to continue to be with those women, and I'm going to leave here in a few days to go out to California to celebrate with 80 witches up on a mountaintop. They're all Dianic witches, and I assure you they're not all lesbians. In fact, lesbians will be in minority, but these are still women-identified women, strong feminists, who are creating and celebrating magic in female-only space, and they're committed to it, and they're dedicated to it. I don't see how we can evolve as human beings without finding a way for men to come into balance somehow. I want us to come together somehow to find a way to create something entirely new. So that said, I don't have a lot of male friends, not because there aren't good men in the world, but because I have limited time and energy here, and I choose to spend my time and my energy with women. Nothing against men. I am for women, and that's what I choose to dedicate my life to. There are many men whom I actually care much about and respect. It's just that I'm simply 
not interested in spending what little bit of time and energy I have doing much with them. I'm just not interested. That's not hating anything. I am radical in the sense that I, as a woman, claim my power and my right to make those choices and that self-determination. And because I have demanded that, I am perceived as being a man-hater because I simply have no attention nor time for them. I was going to change the subject to Mitch Fest. Uh-huh. I know that you went to the very first one in 1975. Do you remember what you felt when you got on the land? Mm. <laughs> I had never felt that sort of drumming power pulse through my body. There was a drum circle that started, that had already started by the time we got there, and it kept going all day and all night and all day and all night and all day and all night. And I had never, first of all, I'd never heard drums like that, and then I had never seen drums like that, and then I had never seen women like this. How many times did you go to Mitchfest? Every time. Really? All 40 years? Yes. I arranged my life around Mitchfest. It was that important to me. Nothing mattered but getting there. Over the course of that time, what are some things that you notice changing or growing or happening? Well, the big controversies, the ways we dealt with it or we didn't deal with it. First of all, everybody had to get sober because the first several festivals were memorable, I'm sure. We were partying. Some of us got sober and some of us didn't. But in general, it became the thing to become sober. It became the thing to become vegetarian. There were the battles over sadomasochism. I mean, you name it, whatever issue that needed to be debated, it was workshopped and debated and workshopped and debated again. So it was really a space that women could air their grievances and be heard and hear each other. Exactly. If you didn't know how to do that, there were workshops on communication. Any kind of thing you could imagine, there were workshops on and some you couldn't. Do you think it would behoove women today with all of the societal pressures that we're under, just to spend time with each other. And what you did, where you just gathered and talked and talked, do you think it would behoove us today to do that too? Yes. That's what's missing. Yes. We taught ourselves carpentry. We taught ourselves how to fix our own cars. We taught ourselves how to build houses, furniture, how to build organizations, how to do the hard work of communication, how to create great crisis centers and battered women's shelters and women's bookstores and a women's music empire. I mean, we did all of that hands-on by getting together face-to-face and wrestling it out. Along the way, we made deep, abiding friendships and built a sisterhood 
and loved each other passionately and ripped each other to shreds. But, oh, my goodness, what a life. I'm still doing it. It seems so daunting. It's such a uh-huh. big project. How do you even get started? You grab your jacket and head out the door. I'm not kidding. Don't overthink it. Call up another woman. Tell her to call up another woman. Meet at some coffee house. Start talking. Get some other women together. What needs doing? Who needs help? Man, we funded the fucking revolution with fake sales, girls. Come on. Would you call yourself a radical feminist? Oh, hell yeah. What does it mean for you? It means that I'm absolutely, completely, utterly, and totally female-identified. Women come first. That's all, and that's everything. Our listeners are mostly radical feminists or lesbians. Do you have anything additional to say to them? Have courage. I want them to have courage. I want them to have courage. I want them to get out there and fight the good fight and have courage. And no, it's not going to be easy. And I'll leave you with a story. This happened the first night of the first Michigan Women's Music Festival. When we had gone in the gate, we had all been told if there was security breach of any kind that we were to turn on our car lights and start honking our horns because at that time you just pulled into the grounds and parked right beside our cars or in our cars. So there was not this land ethic that developed later. To be honest, getting into the festival was an adventure in and of itself because there were men lined up along the roads with guns and uh, telescopes and binoculars. We had to run a gauntlet to even get in there. There was about 10 of us that had traveled together up from Kentucky. It was the middle of the night, and we were back there with just flashlights, and I had grabbed the tire iron out of the car, and other gals had chains and tire irons and buck knives, and there was a pickup truck with the motor idling quite a ways down the road from the gate where we were, and there were some other pickup trucks down there too. And we could hear them talking and talking loud. And one of the pickup trucks pulled away from the others and started down the road towards us. And I remember without any woman really saying anything, we all just stood there and locked arms in a line across the gate. And a woman who is still my dear, dear friend, Mary, Mary and I stood side by side. And we're both big old tall gals. And we locked arms. And that truck started coming faster and faster. And as it got closer, I could see that there was a shotgun barrel hanging out the window on the passenger side. And uh, they just came at us as hard and fast as they could, and not one of us budged. Not one of us moved. Fortunately, the truck decided at the last minute to veer off, and they didn't use that gun. But we didn't know if they were going to hit us or not. And quite honestly and truthfully, in one day of being in that woman-only space of that first Michigan and the journey that it took to get there, I had found something worth dying for. And I also found the only thing that I could imagine living for, and that's females in female-only space. And I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Falcon. You betcha.
I love you all. That was Ancestor's Song by Kellyanna from her album, I Walk with the Goddess. Next up, we will hear excerpts from an interview WLRN's Amanda did with Linda Bellows, a second-wave feminist who was recently barred from speaking at Cambridge University in England. Miss Bellows is a lesbian feminist, an activist, a consultant, and an author. She has written articles for newspapers like The Guardian and The Independent, and been published in several anthologies, including IC3, The Penguin Book of New Black Writing in Britain. Recently, you've been popping up again in the news because Cambridge rescinded their offer to have you talk at their college because you were very open and upfront that you were going to take a critical stance on gender. That's right. I was just going to say, I wasn't trying to be provocative, but a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, had been um, excluded from speaking 
and I didn't want to go to, to take my time and money to get to that place to be excluded. So I've made clear my position, not hostile, but critical, as a feminist I think should be, and, um, and they disinvited me. It was important for you, not again, not to be argumentative, that it was really important for you to, to be upfront in that because yeah. I think we've gotten to a point where I think the norm is that you are going along with all of this um, yes. gender stuff if you are a feminist. And I wasn't, and I didn't want them to be under any illusions. I wanted to be absolutely clear and honest. I'm not hostile, but I am critical. I mean, if you go to university, I imagine, well, at least when I went to university, I went as a mature student uh, when I already had children, but I went with questions. Uh, I didn't know all the answers. I wanted questions, you know, I wanted to ask questions. And I imagine that students at a, a prestigious university like Cambridge would want to do the same. I was a little wrong. That is a, that's the road to ruin. It's the opposite of, 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 a, of what a, a university should be doing, which is to make you question. How can we move past this tendency to equate ideological criticism uh, with, with bigotry or even violence in order to engage in some meaningful dialogue? I mean, is that even something that feminists can do? Um, or is that something that's kind of I don't beyond know. our control? I think it, there are lots of things within our power. And I, one of the thoughts I have is around the... we. I don't know what, what happens in the States, but we have... A, 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 a loose body called LGBT there's been gay, bisexual and transgender the reason I recall we included transgender and I was involved in um, some police work working with the Metropolitan Police in, in, in London uh, back in 1999 and uh, David Copeland had killed at that point he had killed uh, or tried to kill uh, people in the black community in the Asian community, in the uh, lesbian and gay community. And uh, my view was, and I know I read uh, what the fascists say and do, they were hostile to everybody. So we, 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 we were invited by the police to, to work with them to see if we could build some kind of uh, uh, solidarity and unity and, and, and things like that. And we included trans in because there was nowhere else for them to go. Trans were being, uh, were, and indeed are, um, vulnerable to, to violence attack, and uh, we didn't want to exclude them. And there was, at that point, so we are talking about, what, 17, 18 years ago, there were fewer out trans people. Um, and I, I, I think times are different now. I think that there are many more people who are identifying in a slightly different way. The politics of trans are different now to they were uh, 20, 30 years ago. But um, I think that there are enough of them to be a movement of their own. They don't have to be in with the lesbian and gay and bisexual. We are, after all, relating to sexuality, uh, to you know who we love, and it's not about our gender. So I think that they are, they're concerned about their gender. Fine, let them go off and do that. Had you not been barred from speaking at Cambridge, you would have started a conversation that is, that is critical in, to have um, in order to move past, as yes. The Guardian put it, I think they put it really well, um, this quote-unquote stalemate between radical feminists and quote-unquote queer activists. 
Do you see us ever moving past this yes. particular stalemate in the near future? And, and what will we have to do to accomplish? Uh, well, I would suggest that we move away from them. I think that we have lost our space to talk as feminists to each other. So I think we need to rebuild that space. I don't know numerically whether they are stronger or, or, or more of them than there are of us. I'm not really bothered. I don't. I think if there were just two of us, it would be sufficient to start a dialogue, start a thoughtful discussion in the world about gender and getting rid of it. I'm I, I'm so furious with the idea of gender. These tend to be. Uh, Slightly different in America, the USA, in which there are maybe significant numbers of um, African-American, previously men, who identify as women because they will receive less violence from the police and, uh, and the state. I understand perfectly well why it is different for those who were previously black men in, in the United States to now identify as black female because they're oppression will be less not so in this country and besides which we have to get rid of the blasted racism rather than having to make somebody change their their body and change their outlook i, I mean it's it seems to me completely bizarre to create this new queer politics which is beneficial it seems to me to white men in a talk at oxford you brought up that in recent discourse on oppression there is little to no mention of the role that class plays specifically in oppression. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And what is causing this shift from a class-based analysis of oppression to to a more individualistic perspective, which I guess you could sum up as being liberal, <laughs> liberal feminism? I do think that, there, that there's less of a, a critical... Um, look at ideas it seems to me that this one of of of, uh, of gender and queer politics is superficial it is of is I, I can't i really cannot see the kind of not just revolutionary but the, the, the where, where freedom is in these notions of, of queerness i cannot see for the world now it might be for the individual but i, I personally I, I remain a socialist i want the world to be a, a better a free place for everybody that's 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 what i want it's what i seek to to find and i can't understand what it is that these queer libertarians want I can see what they want for themselves, but I can't necessarily see what they want for the world. The people who aren't here, they are in, an, in another place. I cannot understand it. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in your activism in past decades, and how do they compare to the challenges that you face today? Well, I, I do remember we, we, when we had a women's liberation movement in, in, in Britain, we kind of fell apart around differences about uh, almost competing and i i think that we we the the some of the women who who'd started the women's liberation movement and who were most um actively involved in st well, starting it really they were terribly privileged women it's not a crime they were privileged and i don't think that they understood anything other than feeling guilty 
they didn't feel responsible or willing to learn they felt guilty and i personally think that guilt is one of the most useless emotions known to humankind we never get anything done via guilt in fact it's an excuse to do bugger all so in britain the women's liberation movement uh, declined because there were too many differences. I mean, one ironically, of course, one of the differences was not only the stuff around gender and personal identity, but S&M, sadomasochism, played a big part of women not being able to communicate with each other. Um, and I, I, I do think that the era of S&M was, in public spaces and in discourse, caused a great rift amongst certainly amongst feminists, and lesbian feminists in particular. I think it's doable. I think we can do it, but we need to come together with uh, feminist practices. I mean, consciousness raising is a revolutionary tool. We need to get back to doing it. How do you think is the best way to go about that in, in an age that is kind of ruled by sound bites and social media and just get things we out ignore it, it. Ignore it. <laughs> yes yeah ignore it ignore it it's there but we we have other ways of communicating just because something is there we don't i mean we don't we we, we don't we don't all have to drive fast cars because they exist you know there are ways i think there was something useful about a group of women or indeed a group of men it's just i don't want to join um <laughs> a group of women talking freely with each other and exploring ideas and doing that with wider groups and communicating and we we do it face to face i think that um new technology uh you know uh, internet etc has its place but it is a bit random and i think we need trust and to explore in depth our ideas feminist ideas about how we can be make an equal safe world for everybody these days most women who are exposed to radical feminism push back against the idea of seeing who we love romantically as a political act which which can be seen as a direct contradiction <laughs> to the views of lesbian feminists and some heterosexual feminists during the 70s so what was your view yeah. on that back then, and what is it now regarding love and sexuality as political? It's hard to say. I mean, we're in, we're in different times, but I um, don't expect all women to be lesbians as a political act. Thank you very much. No, I don't. No, I really not. I don't think that's a good idea. I do think that um, those of us who wish to be lesbians can and should be more political about our being lesbians i think we should take the power that we have usually to be not to, to have to alter what we say in order not to hurt a man's feelings um i i'm still a political lesbian but i'm also and i always have been a lesbian that loves women i'm not a lesbian because i politically don't want to sleep with men though I don't, um, but I I think I was always a lesbian, but it, it's particularly true for me. I didn't, when I was younger, uh, all the lesbians were white. There weren't any black lesbians known to me, known out there. And when I realised that I had 
falling in love with a woman, it did make me rethink everything I'd learnt and been taught about sexuality. And I realised that I had been bombarded with heterosexuality and I would I like it to be more of a choice, which is why I'm always out. I'm not trying to make anyone else a lesbian, but I do want to be seen to be out and proud to at least for some women to consider the possibility if they if they are you know fancy women but i don't think anyone should do it as a political act so looking back on the feminist movement then in the 70s do you think there was and maybe still is a difference between heterosexual radical feminism and lesbian feminism do they do they perhaps have different or even oppositional goals i no i don't think oppositional goals not oppositional goals. I think that if we were to if we were to restart a women's liberation movement across the world, we'd have to be a bit more respectful to which to, towards each other culturally. Uh, I mean, in terms of race and ethnicity, sexuality. I think we have to be more respectful and find better ways of dis- disagreeing with each other. Because I don't think, why should we all agree on everything? (laughs) But hopefully there are lots of things that we can live with. And generally, culturally, as women, we do tend not to fight each other. We're more likely to withdraw. Now I think it's time to come back together, listen to each other and be respectful. And hopefully work ways of, and I'm seeing it even with this dispute and on, on, um, on the, uh, what is the, you know, Facebook and a very other things in which lots of us who were not together on the same side of feminism are coming together. That is a good thing. We need to build on that. And other things like it, where we, we agree more than we disagree. And we could rebuild. I, I want, to, want to start with, in Britain, what, what are our se- seven demands of the women's liberation movement i'd like to see a, re- a new women's liberation movement starting with those seven and building on them and building across uh heterosexuality and lesbian politics and lesbian feminist politics if lesbian feminism does is more critical and doesn't accept what i think is a man's analysis of binary and all all of the rubbish that goes with it I, I think it shouldn't be compulsory to be a feminist, a lesbian feminist. I, it isn't compulsory. Those of us who agree with each other should have the, uh, the sense, the, the wisdom and the bravery to begin to reassemble and it, be more inclusive and be strong. We have a lot of strength between us. We need to, we need to activate that strength. Where do you think lesbian feminist activism is headed in the future and how in in this age of queerness and and gender politics how can lesbian feminists maintain a strong spirit of unity oh i think with ease we 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 have rational politics the other lot if i may put it as crudely as that Mm -hmm. i think well, if they still agree, with, if, if in a few years' time, having critically assessed and they still agree with it, well, that's their right. And I'm not going to attack them, but I do want to build on a politics which is more inclusive, 
and more likely to change the world, not just our little bit of it. I think that the politics I'm articulating are capable of being of universal significance to huge numbers of women throughout the world. And no, they don't have to be lesbian. What do you think can be done to remedy the fact that today's feminists continually choose, or I guess this new wave of feminists, I should say, continually Mm. choose to Mm. ignore and even turn their back on their feminist foremothers and herstory? They'll come back. Teenagers often need to do that thing, reject their parents. And what do they do in older age? Find the same things that they found annoying doing they're doing themselves so i'm i'm not i'm not negative about the differences the uh frictions that there are there have always been and uh we get don't we 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 sharpen our arguments and we learn more by listening to our young our youngers and our elders well i'd like to say that i think we have the potential as women throughout the world to unite and to focus on what we have in common and what we want to create. I know that I want freedom and liberty for all women to do the things that we want to do and that we need to do, free from fear and threat and violence and exploitation. I think we can make the world a better place for all of us, not just those of us in rich nations like Britain or USA. I think we can do that. Wow, that's a cool doodle you got going on there, sister. What is it? Yeah, it's some stuff I drew during class to pass the time, and it makes me feel better to do feminist art. You know, living in the patriarchy and all that, so... Actually, upon taking a closer look, that's no doodle. That's a bona fide work of fine feminist art you got there. I love how the gorilla is refusing to shave her legs. Very strong graphic. Very strong. Thanks. Wish there was something I could do with it besides just work on it in class. I dream of smashing the patriarchy with my designs, but I just don't know how to get them out there, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. I have seen many a rad femmes notebook covered in cool doodles, but not many of those doodles or designs in the public eye. Hmm. Hey, have you heard about WLRN's t-shirt design contest? Maybe you could submit it there. What? Wait, really? They're holding a t-shirt design contest. How does it work? It's easy. Just send them your design via wlrnewscontact at gmail.com by December 5th, and the collective will pick the one they like best and create a new featured t-shirt on their site and send you, the designer, a free shirt. Cool. I have friends who are artists, too. I'll definitely tell them about this opportunity to get our feminist art out there. Thanks. What's that email address again? Send your t-shirt design to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com to enter the WLRN t-shirt design contest ending on December 5th, 2017. Where do I put this fire, this bright red feeling, this tiger lily down my mouth? He wants to grow to 20 feet tall I've left Bethlehem and I feel free I've left the girl I was supposed to be
the song Tiger by Paula Cole. Our final interview is one that WLRN's Thistle Pedersen did with Tara Ayers. Miss Ayers is a cultural activist who has spent the last 43 years producing women's and lesbian and gay concerts, theater, and other cultural events, first in Kansas City, then in Connecticut and Wisconsin, and now in the San Francisco Bay Area. After years of producing women's concerts and dances in Madison, Wisconsin, she served for nine years as the artistic director of Stage Q, Madison's LGBT theater troupe. She was involved in community radio for 35 years on WYBC-FM in New Haven as part of the Come Out Tonight Collective, and then at community radio station WORT-FM in Madison as an anchor and producer for Her Turn, a feminist radio news collective, and Query, a program about LGBTQ+ and as a music programmer for Her Infinite Variety and Better Living Through Show Tunes. When did you notice that the women's movement was kind of tapering off and, you know, it wasn't as strong and thriving as it was at its peak in the 70s and possibly in the early 80s? And what did it feel I would like? take the second wave out well into the 90s, actually, because there were still tons of women's bookstores. There were still uh, lots of feminist publications. I actually was part of a group that organized an international lesbian separatist conference from 87 to 91. So I still think there was a, a thriving women's movement well up into the into the early to mid-90s. But, um, you know, there were, I think, you know, I think it took a lot of this because, because there was so much overlap between community and activism and between and there was so much overlap between friendship circles and activist organizations i think it took many of us who'd been in the women's movement a while to notice exactly how much things had changed you know and you could certainly look at a number of factors you know you could look at the closing of women's bookstores you could look at women's presses going out of business, you could look at, um, you know, number of feminist magazines and publications uh, going out of business. But, you know, I have always thought, you know, the Reagan years, and in particular, um, you know, the fact that we had to kind of hunker down because politically, you know, we were under attack, you know, there was all the, you know, the moral majority and, you know, a lot of the political issues that were going on at the time, you know, the, the, the right turned and attacked the left and attacked the women's movement really specifically. So I think we went into defensive mode. But I also think the AIDS epidemic had a huge impact on feminist activism because a lot of women who had been working for our own rights and our own um, 
self-determination and for a feminist revolution turned to take care of the men in our communities who were dying. And, you know, in some cases we were, t- you know, a lot of lesbians were, t- and, you know, the women's movement was not entirely, but had a, you know, had a lot of lesbians in it. You know, a lot of women taking care of men who actually would never have fought for our rights, you know, who weren't actually really allies. It was, I think there, I, it, there was a, there was a sense of urgency at the time of taking care of men who, in, with whom a lot of women felt community, even if, you know, I mean, I actually had a friend who helped take care of a man who was dying, who, you know, ha, you know, I, I know for a fact, was, you know, said he didn't think that lesbians belonged in the gay bars in Madison. And, um, you know, I, so I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of sense of urgency of, we've got to take care of this generation of men who are dying. And I certainly had, you know, male friends from college. I mean, I have to admit, by the time I was, you know, I had a few close male friends in college, and then I didn't really have close male friends for many, many years again. But men that that I went to college with that I cared about, you know, contracted HIV and died. And there was just this, there was this sense of we've got to step up and do something because, you know, because this entire generation is going to die. It was, it really did feel like this huge emergency, but it also meant that a ton of women who had been working on women's issues turned away from those to work, you know, to, to save men's lives or to be care, you know, once again, to be caregivers for men. And so I, I think it's really hard to underestimate the impact that had on, on feminist activism and on the women's movement. I think that was huge. Was there an analysis or a critique of that phenomena that happened with the HIV? Yeah, there certainly was at the time. It wasn't widespread. I mean, it was, um, you know, mostly it was lesbian separatists that I'm aware of who were talking about that. And, you know, it was also a time period in which which it became very, very popular to trash separatists because, you know, suddenly separatists were really hateful women who didn't care if men were dying. You know, oh, mm-hmm. so and it was really, you know, in, in some ways, it actually really reminds me of the the discourse today about, you know, female born women and um, the nexus of that was talking about trans issues, because simply talking about it was seen as hateful and murderous, you know, so and there was a huge conflation between saying, OK, look, we are taking care of men again at you know, which has a cost for us and for our ability to focus on our own issues, you know, it seems really similar to me between, you know, to saying um, we are, you know, we, we need to focus on women's issues and not center um, trans issues and just have it, having an analysis, analysis of that now is seen as hateful and murderous, you know. And, in fact, I don't hate trans people. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but... You know, I also I also have an analysis of you know how the dynamics of um, gender work in this culture. So and the danger in which women, the danger that women face. And you know, I also have an analysis of um, the fact that trans women, you know, most that the that the systems of oppression of women are also you know that that homophobia and transphobia are actually secondary to sexism, uh, you know, the, the, the oppression that, you know, that trans women face and that gay men face is, is you know, totally logical as a construct under a system, uh, under a system of systemic sexism and misogyny. So, so, I, so I certainly see parallels between that period of time and this period of time. And as a young, fiery, 
uh, radical lesbian who thought the revolution was going to come in my lifetime. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine now exactly how being part of a broad-based political movement um, felt because, you know, I couldn't not be a radical feminist um, because it just made sense to me, but it's also where the party was. You know? So hmm. the two, it was really, impo- you know, we lived, breathed, slept, worked, you know, and uh, organized, you know, together. And it was all, you know, it, it, I couldn't have separated out my social life from my activist life. I absolutely couldn't have separated those. So it was such an exciting incendiary time. And I really seriously thought the revolution was going to come in my lifetime. And, you know, who would have known that the heteropatriarchy could adjust so easily to the threats that we faced? And I actually think, you know, all the gender stuff that's going on these days is a large part of patriarchies having adjusted to the threats that we posed, you know. Because now we've got, instead of a movement where we're threatening the status quo, we have a movement where we are the status quo in people's minds. And it's like, are you freaking kidding me? So can you explain that a little bit? We have a movement where feminists are the status quo. What do you mean right. by that exactly? Well, what I mean is, you know, feminists and, you know, older lesbian feminists in particular are seen as these old-fashioned dinosaurs who represent mm-hmm. the worst of thinking about about gender and about sex and about sexism that, you know, because we are insistent that women have a right to self-determination because we are insistent on talking about things like rape and childhood sexual abuse and, you know, the fact that, you know, the particularity of our bodies is inseparable from the ways in which we are oppressed, that, you know, that makes us the enemy somehow, that I talk about the fact that I have a vagina and a uterus somehow makes me an enemy you know, I mean, intellectually, it's fascinating to me to try and trace that. I mean, personally and emotionally, it's, it's deeply, deeply painful because how how does someone like me who actually has been an incredibly good ally to trans people, you know, in terms of civil rights in, you know, in Wisconsin, how, do, how does that actually, how have I turned into their enemy because I have a critique of, you know, how sexism actually works? Do you have anything that you can say to our younger listeners who didn't get to experience the second wave and may have almost a romanticized view of what was going on back then and and what it is that they might be able to do to recreate that excitement and Mm -hmm. the feeling of it and also to be really effective at our practice of feminism? Most of the hardest things I have done in my life, but also the most joyful things I have done in my life, have have been around organizing as a feminist. So, you know, I guess what I would say to young women is that what you ought to be working on is creating the world, is living into the world you want to see, living into the world that you want to create. And so that means finding ways to be an activist and other women with whom to engage as an activist so that you actually have political community because that was the sense of excitement. It was the fact that, you know, we had a movement, we have political community. And one of the things I worry about with some of the young women that I know, and particularly those I encounter online, is they have no political community. They've got Facebook. And, you know, unless you live in a totally rural setting, you need to you need to actually be in the same room with some folks and do some work together, um, at least some of the time. You know, and anybody who lives in a 
city of any size or near a city of any size actually should have access to that. So I guess what I would say to young women is find political community and don't just do that online. And, you know, liking stuff on Facebook and and posting articles about stuff you agree with, it's not unimportant, but that doesn't count as activism. That's not enough. You actually need to organize things. You need to, and, you know, and and what that's going to look like is in large part going to depend on what makes you happy as you do it, because part of this, if you're going to settle into the long haul of being an activist, you need to actually do stuff that speaks to you. So, for example, a ton of my activism over my lifetime has been cultural. So, you know, organizing concerts because I think, you know, music actually does change the world or has the ability both to sustain us in our activism and also also to, you know, that culture actually it can be world-changing. So, you know, so for me, a ton of my activism was cultural because that speaks to me because, you know, I'm a singer and I'm an actor. So, you know, I did, you know, so I created music and I organized concerts, not of myself, but, you know, other people. I ran a ran a queer theater company um, because, again, I think culture changes the world. So it may be that what speaks to you is, to another, to another person is organizing conferences or organizing marches or writing to representatives. You know, so there are, in a world where so much is wrong, Find some stuff that speaks to you to work on and also find people you enjoy working with because that's important. And I don't have to, I don't have to like everybody I work with, but, you know, I certainly have to, I can't actively dislike people I work with because I can't sustain that. The other thing is there are national organizations you can get involved with. So, you know, get involved with the Women's Liberation Radio News Collective. Get involved with the We Want the Land Coalition, which is, I'm doing all of its work remotely because, you know, we're all over the country. And that's actually a group that is purchasing the land where the, that was the home for the Michigan Women's Music Festival for the last 36 years. So, so to young women, look around you, find an issue that speaks to you and about which you're passionate and organize around that. And if there isn't a group, here's the other thing. If there isn't a group that's working on something, but you're passionate about it, Put a notice on your local, you know, on, on local listservs about wanting to work on something and find other women who want to work on it with you, you know. And then that turns into that turns into organizations. And some of those are still around and some of those aren't. And longevity is not, of an organization is not necessarily a sign of whether or not it was successful. It's like, did you do the stuff that you wanted to do while you were doing it? And, the, and I guess the other thing I would say to young women is, you know, this has always been true, but it's particularly true these days. If you, if, you, if you get up and do anything, somebody's going to take pot shots at you, and that could be inside the movement or outside the movement. So be be ready to have a thick skin and to have people to support you because, I've, you know, I've, I've said this for 40 years, you know, that doing anything in our community or doing any kind of political organizing is can can feel like you just painted a target on your own back, and you need – you need to let that stuff roll off you. You need to have a thick skin about that. And you need to have folks to support you. Hey, Sally. How's it going, sister? Not too well. I'm bummed about all the mud slinging online and tired of being called a turf all the time by trans activists. I know what you mean. The bullying has really gotten out of hand. I wonder what we could do about it. Hmm. Hey, I know. Have you heard about WLRN's new TERF t-shirts that say, if you call any woman a TERF, you are a misogynist? They're designed by Nidra Johnson and are pretty rad. We can take that term and turn it around. I could never wear a shirt like that. It would just cause them to come after me even more. I understand. 
But what about wearing it at RadFem gatherings around the house? Or, hey, I know, what about wearing it to a RadFem slumber party as your pajamas? Ooh, I want to go. I want to go to a RadFem slumber party and wear my turf shirt. Yes, that sounds like it would be really cathartic and good for me to get one of those shirts and host a slumber party with my gal pals. Thanks for cheering me up, sister. How do I get a shirt? It's easy. When you donate $20 or more to WLRN for them to continue the awesome collective media work they're doing, just indicate the size and color of the shirt you'd like when you make your donation, and they'll send you the shirt after enough pre-orders have been received. Cool. How do I make my donation? Just go to the WLRN WordPress site and click on the T-shirts tab, and all the instructions are there. Thanks, sister. Can't wait to get my turf shirt and to support Women's Community Radio. And now, here's WLRN's Sekhmet Shial with her tribute to second-wave feminists and feminisms and the historical context they provide for us today to continue on the good fight. You are listening to WLRN, brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio Radio News. News. It's been 47 years since 1970, and more often than not, that decade of international feminist revolution feels even further away, almost like it happened in a different world. Some of the feminists from that era are dead, and the ones who are still among us are now in their 60s and 70s. Looking back on their feminist movement feels like looking at a star in the night sky. This dim, faraway light that in reality is and was a colossal fireball that sprung out of total darkness. The world has changed faster and more drastically since feminism's 20th century explosion than anyone could have predicted. Even after all the progress that the original feminists achieved in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think it's safe to say that today, in 2017, we're almost as disconnected from feminism culturally and politically as women were before the 1960s. We have new forms of extreme misogyny to deal with on top of the old ones, and our ranks are thin compared to what they were. But we're not starting from scratch, and that's our biggest advantage. One that we owe to the feminists who did an amazing amount of work for the cause in a world just as hostile as the one we live in now. So many of the women who created feminism in the late 60s and 70s were young. Women in their 20s who had nothing but their own experiences, intuition, and intellectual capabilities to go on when they developed the feminism that we believe in today. They had very few feminist predecessors to turn to and no resources whatsoever to guide or support their feminist consciousness raising. Not only did they have to create their own feminist theory and practices, but they had to do it in a time where women had few civil rights and no cultural or social respect. A time where it was socially acceptable for male misogyny to be overt, unrestrained, and vulgar. The original feminists started feminism before abortion was legalized in the U.S. in 1973, before Title IX was passed in 1972, before workplace sexual harassment was conceptualized as a form of legal sex discrimination against women, before there was any image of women in pop culture that depicted us as something other than wives and mothers and sex objects, before spousal rape was made illegal, and before any of the domestic violence shelters for women existed. It was because of these feminists that all of those achievements came to pass. The lesbian feminists of the 60s and 70s, many of whom became lesbians as a result of their feminist awakening, 
had to come out in a society where they had no protection whatsoever. They grew up in a world where lesbianism was unspeakable and where no group of heterosexuals pretended to accept it or care about lesbian well-being. A world where cops harassed lesbians and gay men simply for being visible and got away with it. They came out anyway. They left their husbands and fiancés anyway. They wrote books and opened bars and organized lesbian-only events anyway. They marched with their dyke banners and signs anyway. These lesbian feminists, for the first time in recent history, openly challenged and rejected heterosexuality as the fate of all females. They didn't have much money or any national organizations backing them up. They didn't have the right to marry each other or legal protection from employment and housing discrimination. They didn't have any positive image of themselves in mainstream media and culture at all. And they also had no reason to expect that these conditions would change within their lifetimes. No reason to feel safe in a world full of men and heterosexual women. Yet they dedicated themselves to the task of inventing their own culture, creating their own spaces, building their own communities, all on the prerequisite of being out and being visible and speaking not only their lesbian truth, but their feminist truth too. This is what strikes me when I think about these women and look back at that time I missed out on. They were brave. Whether they knew it or not, whether they felt it or not, they were the bravest people alive in the 1960s and 1970s. They were brave in a way that sadly women don't seem to be today in this era of the trans cult and liberal men's rights activism masquerading as feminism. In so many ways, the first radical feminists had far less than we have now, and yet they were so much braver and bolder and fueled by an unbelievable amount of creative and political energy. They had just as much to lose as women do now and more, but they were loud and honest and persistent. They didn't ask for anyone's permission or blessing before they did what they did. They didn't waste a whole lot of time dreaming of what they wanted. They just went out and found a way to make their visions real. These feminists dared to do the one thing that women aren't supposed to do. They said no to male rules. They rejected femininity. They threw out religion and capitalism and war, not giving a damn that these were all the things that male society stood for men and rejection of anti-feminist women. They started fighting porn as soon as it emerged, refused to accept prostitution as an inevitable condition for women, and stood up to male violence worldwide in their protests and speeches and the women's shelters they opened for the first time. Some lesbian feminists declared themselves separatists, regardless of what the hetero-feminists thought of them, and created a movement where lesbians could live apart from men in heterosexual society. Black and brown feminists fought both racism and misogyny, even though whites and men alike were brazen about their hatred for these women who lived at the intersection of racial and sexist oppression. For the first time in hundreds of years, women said no to men and male rules by the thousands. Feminism was born out of that no, and it still is. I want to say thank you to some of my radical and lesbian feminist predecessors for what they did last century and for making me want to do as much as they did and more. Thank you, Kate Millett, for writing your landmark book, Sexual Politics, as your doctoral dissertation at the age of 26, and for spending the rest of your life writing, speaking, and working to advance female liberation and rights. 
Thank you, Andrea Dworkin, for your 12 brilliant feminist books, your powerful speeches, and your decades of activism against porn and prostitution. Thank you, Valerie Solanas, for writing The Scum Manifesto. Thank you, Mary Daly, for challenging patriarchal religion and developing radical feminist philosophy in your career as a writer and scholar, for mentoring Janice Raymond and for telling the truth about transgenderism decades before it hit mainstream culture. Thank you, Julia Penelope, for co-editing the anthology for Lesbians Only, a separatist anthology, writing your own books about lesbianism, and for increasing lesbian visibility in the U.S. college and university system by working as one of the first women's studies professors and bringing your lesbian feminist contemporaries Mary Daly, Audre Lorde, and Adrian Rich to speak on campus. Thank you, Jill Johnston, for writing Lesbian Nation, The Feminist Solution, and for being fierce and open about your lesbian feminism and lesbian separatism throughout the 70s and beyond. Thank you, Adrian Rich, for writing Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Existence, and for your many books of feminist poetry and nonfiction. Thank you, Ty Grace Atkinson, for writing radical feminist pamphlets and giving speeches all over the U.S. and France. Condemning heterosexual marriage and openly criticizing the Catholic Church, founding the group The Feminists, and publishing your book, Amazon Odyssey. Thank you, Bev Joe, for writing your book, Dykes Loving Dykes, and for all the energy and time and love you have given to the lesbian feminist community since you were 20 years old. Thank you, Sheila Jeffries, for your 10 feminist books covering lesbianism, gender, prostitution, heterosexuality, femininity, and patriarchal religion, for fearlessly speaking the truth about the trans cult, and for your contributions to the lesbian community and lesbian feminism. Thank you, Janice Raymond, for the years you spent co-directing the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, for speaking up against reproductive trafficking, and for your writing, including books The Transsexual Empire, Women as Wombs, and A Passion for Friends. Thank you, Audre Lorde, for your feminist poetry and prose, for being a black lesbian feminist who had the guts to attack racism in the feminist movement and society at large, and for giving black lesbians and black women a voice. Thank you, Barbara Smith, for starting Kitchen Table Women of Color Press with Audre Lorde and Sherry Moraga, for your own feminist writing, and for co-founding the Combahee River Collective, to represent and develop black feminism. Thank you, Marilyn Fry, for your radical lesbian feminist writing, especially your two books, The Politics of Reality and Willful Virgin. Thank you, Lisa Vogel, for buying a piece of land when you were 19 years old and hosting the Michigan Women's Music Festival there for 40 years in a row. Thank you for giving tens of thousands of women and girls the chance to know what freedom feels like. Thank you, Shulamith Firestone, for co-founding the feminist groups New York Radical Women, Red Stockings, and New York Radical Feminists, and for writing The Dialectic of Sex. Thank you, Gerda Lerner, for helping to found women's history departments and courses in U.S. colleges and universities, and for writing some of the first and most comprehensive history books on patriarchy, including The Creation of Patriarchy and The Creation of Feminist Consciousness. 
Thank you, Sherry Moraga, for giving the feminist movement one of its first anthologies by women of color in this bridge called My Back, and for being one of the first Chicana lesbian feminists to be out and active in the movement. Thank you, Catherine McKinnon, for bringing radical feminism into the legal sphere through your enormous contributions to legal literature on sexual harassment, anti-pornography, and women's rights. Thank you, Sonia Johnson, for publicly exposing and fighting the Mormon Church's resistance to the Equal Rights Amendment, and for your seven feminist books. And to all the other radical feminists and lesbian feminists who gave their time, energy, love, intellect, money, space, creativity, and courage to the feminist movement in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, thank you. We are feminist today because of you and your work. Be with us as we do what we can to bring back the movement in the 21st century. That concludes WLRN's 19th edition podcast for November 2nd, 2017. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send an email to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. This is Thistle, signing off for now. <laughs> From all the women at WLRN, we hope you had a safe and fun Halloween. This is Julia Beck, signing off for now. <laughs> and I'm Sekma Owl. Thanks for listening. We always release our handcrafted podcast the first Thursday of every month. December's podcast will take a look at women in music, so stay tuned. Until next time, stay strong. Just a reminder to check out our t-shirts tab on the WLRN website. We are proud to present Nidra Johnson's, quote, If you call any woman a turf, you are a misogynist, unquote. Shirts, along with our WLRN t-shirt design contest. Send your t-shirt design idea to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com, and the team at WLRN will select the lucky winner right before the release of our December podcast so we can announce it on the show. That means there is only a month left to enter to win. I can't wait to see what our talented listeners come up with. This is Natasha, signing off for now. Thanks for tuning in. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss?